Welcome to Lakewood Sermon Podcast. We're glad you're here, and we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 online at lakewoodok.com live. Or we'd also love to see you in person at our campus in McAllister. Oh, good morning, church. You know, uh, you know, I, I, we picked that uh, epic music. Usually I don't like epic music for the, uh, the way that we come into it, but really, we're going to be telling some pretty epic stories over the next nine weeks, and so I'm really excited for us to dive in together. But I've got to tell you something that happened this week. See, this week, I got, actually it was, it was on Monday, I got a letter in the mail, and so I opened it, and what it was was this letter right here, and this letter tells us uh, that we don't owe the bank any more money as a church. Yeah. That's a pretty wonderful thing. This has been a long time in the process, and we're so glad that we get to share it now, but we don't owe the bank any more money. We are running debt-free as a church, which is amazing. And so what I want to do real quick as we start out is this. There are so many churches and so many places that can't say that right now, and that puts us at a pretty high position, um, not of... Uh, notoriety or anything like that, but it puts us at a position to do something. And so if we can, let's stop. Whoa. Okay. Hopefully that'll fix in a second. Uh, but let's stop. Let's take a moment and let's ask God uh, to bless us, but also to give us wisdom and uh, that we would be about what he wants to do. Let's take a moment as an entire church and just pray that God would lead this. Lord, we love you. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us your children. Thank you for allowing us uh, to be your children. Uh, Father, thank you for bringing us to a place as a church uh, where we don't have to pay for our building anymore. God, I ask that you would help us to step into that position of just privilege with an understanding that you're calling us to do something with this. God, please give us wisdom on how to, how to go forward, Father. Give us a heart for your kingdom and teach us uh, how to step into it, God. Give us ideas and push us in, in directions that we, we don't know yet. Father, thank you for where we can be as a church right now. But God, please help us to use it for something. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you'll give me just one moment, I'm pretty sure I can fix that fairly quickly. Or I can't, and in which case, um, we're going to have some fun today. Yay! All right. All right, well, welcome to church. We're glad you're here. Glad that TVs are now working. Um, I got to tell you, I grew up in a Christian household. If you don't know much about me, I grew up in the Church of Christ uh, in Muskogee, Oklahoma. I moved there when I was 10 years old and uh, went to Muskogee Church of Christ my entire childhood. My dad is one of the executive pastors on their staff today. Um, it's just, it's, it's my life growing up. And so, at, like many church kids, uh, I grew up listening to some pretty decent hard rock music growing up especially within the Church of Christ. I'm talking about really, really big bands like Newsboys mm. and Audio Adrenaline. And when I really wanted to walk at, rock out, I would put on Michael W. Smith, and I'd go West Young Man. Now, if you grew up in church circles, you get all of that. And if you didn't, you have no idea, and that's totally fine. But I grew up uh, really enjoying those types of, of music. I remember the first time I was with my dad in his car, and he put a Boston tape in. And uh, I couldn't believe it. I, I said, Dad, is this rock and roll? And he said, yes, it is. And I'm like, I'm finally listening to rock and roll. But as growing up, I really enjoyed uh, 
one of my two favorite bands were Caveman's Call and Jars of Clay. Um, I could have listened to everything that those two bands put out. And I remember there was a time I grew up, and I ended up going to college, and my brother moved to Texas and joined a band called Poor Rich Folk. And uh, they started doing pretty well for themselves, and it got to the point where they were invited to go and record their next album at a studio in Nashville. And so one day, I get a phone call from my brother, and he says, all right, Paul, you ready? <laughs> sure, I'm always ready, man. What's up? And he said, all right, hold on. And then I hear a bunch of people say, hi, Paul. I said, okay, awesome, thanks, man. And he goes, you don't know it, but that was every member of Jars of Clay and Caveman's Call saying your name. And I'll be honest, that was a pretty big moment for me. <laughs> I, was, I was ecstatic by that, actually. I was like, man, they, they have no idea who I am. I don't have a personal relationship with any of them, but they said hi to me, and that's all it takes right now. I was pretty happy. Now, I wasn't unfamiliar with people saying hi, but for someone uh, to say that to me, was, or for my brother to kind of get that together, was a big deal. Because they were, in the, they were in Nashville, and they were recording at the Jars of Clay studio. And while they were recording one of their songs, Jars of Clay walks into the studio. And Caveman's Call walks into the studio. And then if you were to listen to this album, you would actually hear it. They all jumped on the album together and recorded the album together. It's a really cool thing if, you, if you're in that circle. Uh, but one of my favorite songs that came from that album, it was a song that was called Teach Me to Love. Um, and I've got to be honest, whenever I heard it, it kind of hit me. Uh, in it, the writer uses some strong language and some strong comparisons to make a very strong point. And so if I would, I'd like to share it with you, uh, what it says. It goes like this. It says, God, is it true that you love porn stars the same as you love pastors? That you love the deadbeat father like you love the blameless bastards? Because if that's true, then I need you to teach me to love. Now, granted, it uses some strong language in there, but hear it out. What the author realized was is there was a big difference between the way that he viewed the love of God and the way that God viewed the love of God. He realized that there was a difference between his heart and the heart of God, and whenever he saw people, he tended to label them by their circumstance. But whenever God saw people, he tends to label them as his children. And he realized that there was a large uh, distance, that he was far from the heart of God. And there's so many times where I am the exact same. Where I see people, but I don't see them as who God, as someone who God deeply loves. Instead, I see them sometimes as obstacles. Or sometimes I see people, and I see them as sources of rage if they just cut me off in traffic. Sometimes I see people and I see, fill in the blank of what you see when you see somebody. Sometimes I'm so consumed with my own life that I don't see them at all. And I can easily forget that I've been placed here for a purpose and that my calling is to people. That as Christians, our calling is to go to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, reaching them with the gospel. To see people and love people with the heart of Christ. But taking on the heart of Christ is a kind of a daunting task. In fact, it's so difficult that in all of Scripture, there's only one man that's really described as having the pursuit of the heart of God. And so we're going to be taking the next nine weeks to look at the life of this man. This man who was the youngest in his family. 
This man who was a shepherd, who killed a giant, who ran for his life from a mad king. This man who eventually became the king. This man who was an adulterer. This man who was a murderer. And still this man who was called a man after God's own heart. We're going to be studying the life of David. And hopefully we're going to learn some of the true nature of the heart of God. And my prayer is that we will be convicted and transformed as we try to make our heart look like his heart. So let's stop one more time and let's pray that God will speak. That we'll hear, that we'll be convicted, and that we'll move together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the day. God, I know I'm excited about your word right now. I'm excited about what, uh, what we're going to be talking about to the point to where I feel like my words are just jumbling up and getting uh, too fast. But Father, I ask that you would calm me. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me, Lord, that uh, your words would be the ones that make it through and that you would implant them in the hearts of your people. Father, I ask that we would be a people after your heart and that you would teach us what that means. Lord, we love you. We so, thank you so much for what you've done for us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be spending the next nine weeks studying the life of David. But to do that, to talk about the life of David, uh, we first have to understand some of the components that happen to set up the story of David. And to do that, we have to start with a guy named Samuel. Everyone say Samuel. All right. Samuel, he was a prophet. He was a judge. And that's what he was. He was over the Israelites, and because at this time, the Israelites didn't actually have a king. In fact, if you look at the book of Judges, you see that God regularly would call people to be judges over his people, to rule them as judges of his people. Uh, And even Moses, at one point, was considered a judge of his people. And the reason that they were judges and not kings is because the Israelites already had a king. The Israelites' king was the Lord. God was the king of his people. He was the defender of the Israelites. He was the one that went before them. He was the one that parted the seas. He was the one that brought the pillar of fire. He was the one that sent the quail and the manna. God was their provider. He was their defender. It's what set the Israelites apart from the rest of the world. The rest of the world had kings, but the Israelites had the creator. And so Samuel was a judge for the people, but the problem was this. Samuel was starting to get a little bit older. And the elders of the Israelites were starting to be concerned for who was going to take his place. And this is where we're going to pick it up in the text. Will read it a little bit earlier. Because this is where the Israelites have a very human response to something that they believe that they are supposed to fix here. And so they come to Samuel and they say this. In 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes. They perverted justice. Then all of the elders elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. First off, just as a parent at that point, would you be like, You know, I mean, it's your kids still. It's just the idea of like, hey, you're old and your sons are horrible. Like, thanks, man. Anyway, 
Your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So they say, hey, Samuel, you're old. Your sons are horrible. So therefore, appoint us a king to judge us like all the other nations. And as a parent, I read that and I get frustrated, not just for what they're saying about his kids. I get frustrated because Samuel kind of is like the father of the people right here. He's their ruler. He's leading over them. And right now, I'll be honest, my daughters would love nothing more than a cell phone. If you're a parent in this room and you're in the middle of this battle, I'm with you. But my daughters would like nothing more than their cell phone. And their most common argument for wanting a cell phone is every time that they see one of their friends with one, they'll point it out and they'll say, see, they have a cell phone. And a friend will come over and spend the night and they'll have, she has a cell phone, why can't we have a cell phone? Everyone else has a cell phone. Don't you want me to be like everyone else? And the answer is no. And there's no judgment coming for me if your kid has a cell phone. That's not what this is. It's the argument that gets me. It's that everyone else has one. But then I look back at my time when my parents were saying no to things, and I realized that I used the same argument. I would say things like, Dad, all of my friends got cars on their 16th birthday, which was a lie. <laughs> Here's another lie. Dad, none of my other friends have curfews. <laughs> Absolute lies. And then we see the Israelites use the exact same logic. It says, God, Samuel, give us a king. We want a king. Everybody else has a king. They're making fun of us. Come on, give us a king. We want to be like everybody else. And so understandably, Samuel's is a little upset over this. In chapter 8, verse 6, it says, The thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in what they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Hmm. And so Samuel warns them one more time. He tells them that they're really not going to like the reality of having a king. He says, hey, listen, you want this thing right now, but you don't realize. It kind of reminds me whenever like, you ask for a dog and your dad's like, listen, you're going to have to feed it. You're going to have to walk. I mean, it gives you all the negative sides of it. This is what Samuel does. He takes him through and says, you're going to have a king that rules over you, that takes over your land, that takes from your crops. And he lists all the stuff that a king will do. But the people responded and said this. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there should be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So their response is, yeah, Samuel, that might be true, but at least we'll have a king. At least we'll get what we want and we'll look like all the other nations. Only our king's going to be a newer model, so they'll be jealous. It's not in the scripture, but, you know, if you read between the lines. Uh, anyway... But they give one more reason why they want a king in this passage. And this one is a little bit more telling of their hearts. They want a king to go before them and fight their battles. The Israelites are surrounded by people, potential enemies and some realized enemies. They're afraid. And in their fear, they have forgotten who God is. They've forgotten that God has gone before them in every battle they've ever faced. They've forgotten that they serve a Lord who fights their battles. They've, they've forgotten the God of 
whom uh, it was said in Exodus by Moses, in Exodus chapter 14, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. They're at the bank of the Red Sea. The, the Egyptians are coming against them. Moses gets up and says, don't be afraid. You're about to experience something. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. And then he says, for the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. And you know what happened? The Lord fought for them. They crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground, and God caused it to cover them, the Egyptians. Through their history, they saw over and over again how God has fought for them. They forgot that they have a God who does everything they want for a king. The difference is that their God is not subject to their whims. They forgot their Lord and therefore thought that their lives and their provision was all on them. The people forgot that they already had a king, that they already had someone who would fight their battles and be their provision. They forgot their God, and instead they clinged to their desire to look like everyone else because there is real comfort in conformity. There's a reason why we long for it, to know that we're like everybody else. Whenever we're going through something hard and see somebody else that's going through something harder or something just like ours, it gives us comfort to know that we're not alone. And not only that, but whenever we come to our insecurities and we try to cover them up with all the other things that we try to do, and we see other people doing the same thing, we feel like we're a part of something. We were made to be a part of something. God made us to want to be a part of something bigger than we are. The problem is we look at the culture around us and we take that as the bigger thing. The Israelites forgot in this time that God had called them to be his own people, his chosen people, and that he intended them to live the uncommon life. And so they traded the precious role of the Almighty that set them apart from everyone else for the trinket of human leadership that allowed them to blend into their surroundings. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter that we too are chosen by God. We talked about that in our identity series. It says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if we are to live the lives of the chosen, if we're to embrace this thing that actually sets us apart, then we need to enter into it with the understanding that we are called to a life that won't and shouldn't look like the lives of everybody around us. Because we don't rely on things that everyone else does to give us security and purpose. Because whenever God is the king of our lives, we can go through really difficult times and still hold on to joy and still hold on to faith where we know that we're destined for something that's far bigger than anything this world could ever give us or take away. There is a different king on our thrones. Romans 12.2 says it this way. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Understand who is on your throne. Understand that we're not called to the comfort of conformity. We're actually called to stand out. And this is the first point of the day, which is this, that we are the chosen people of God and our lives and priorities should look different than those of our culture. Guys, I know this isn't an easy thing that we're hitting right now. This is hard. 
And it's not hard to understand. It's pretty simple to understand. It's just hard to grasp it and then apply it and see how that would function in your life. But the truth is this. This was true for the Israelites, and it's true for us today. But even so, the Israelites hear all of these things, and they still want a king. They still want to be like the other nations. They still want that person that they can see bodily in front of them that will be doing the things that they don't want to do that gives them the lives that they do want to have. And they think that the king is the ultimate solution to that. And so they say, bring us the king. And here's the crazy thing. God does something pretty unexpected right here. He gives them what they want. And first Samuel... 822, it says, the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And so he gives them what they want. He's not surprised by their request. He doesn't have to go back to the drawing board and say, they don't want me to be king. What are we going to do? He's not surprised by the request. He doesn't have to rework his plan because as is so often the case with God, he uses our mistakes and our failures for his purpose. And this is no exception. And so he charges Samuel to find and anoint the man that would be king of Israel. And this is where we finally get to meet Saul. Now Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the smallest of the tribes of Israel. Not only was he from the smallest tribe of Israel, he was actually from the smallest clan of the smallest tribe of Israel. And so he's got these humble beginnings. And Scripture even goes as far as to tell us a little bit about what Saul looked like in 1 Samuel 9.2. It said, Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So we know that Saul's a pretty good-looking dude. We know that he's tall. Shoulder above everybody else. That's pretty tall. I mean, I, 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 there's plenty of people in my life that are that much taller than me. That's because I'm not a very tall man. Uh, but Saul was a handsome guy. He was a tall guy. He was the most handsome guy in, out of all the people of Israel. So not only is he handsome, he's tall. And so we got a tall, handsome guy. You get it? Okay. And if you were to line up the men of Israel and say, okay, which one of these guys, out of all these guys lined up here, which one of these guys would you look at and say, that guy's a king? Saul would win hands down every single time. But when we find him in Scripture, he's not doing kingly things. When we find Saul in Scripture, he's looking for his donkey. He lost his donkey. It's not even his donkey. It's his dad's donkey. And so he is with one of his father's servants, and they're searching the countryside trying to find his donkey. He can't find it. And so the father's servant says, hey, there's a seer, which is what they called prophets at this time. There's a seer that's in this town. Let's go talk to the seer. And so they go and they run into Samuel and they get to the city to seek out Samuel. And this is where we're going to pick it up in the text in chapter nine, verse 15. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people, Israel. He shall save my people from the hands of the Philistines, for I have seen my people Because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. So Samuel sees Saul coming, and God's like, this this is the guy. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you know, or I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, they were lost three days ago. Don't set your mind on them, for they have been found. 
So they come to Samuel looking for his donkeys. They run into Samuel, and Samuel says, okay, um, you're going to come and have a feast with me. Then you're going to stay the night on my roof. And then tomorrow, you're going to wake up. I'm going to tell you everything that's on your mind. And don't worry about the donkeys. They've already been found. They didn't even bring up the donkeys yet. Saul's got to be like, okay, this guy's, this is it. This is legitimate here. And so Saul, instead of finding his donkeys and going back to his father, finds himself at the feast of the, at the prophet's table. He eats uh, the best selections of Daniel's food. He sleeps on Daniel's roof. And then the next day, he wakes up and Samuel doesn't just tell him about his donkeys, but instead brings out a flask of oil and anoints Saul and tells him, hey, Saul, you're going to be the king of the Israelites. And then to prove it, he gives Saul three different signs that will confirm what he is saying, and all of them come true. And there's so much more to the story that we don't really get to talk about today, but I encourage you to go through chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Samuel. It's a really interesting piece of scripture. But Saul is placed and proclaimed as the king of Israel. And there's a funny moment when he's chosen. They're looking for him. He's finally said, this is going to be our king, and they can't find him anywhere. And they eventually find him hiding among the luggage, which is really funny to me because we already know that Saul's a really big dude, and he's trying to hide behind pieces of luggage. This is not a guy seeking the spotlight. In all respects, this guy kind of seems like he's going to be a good king. And everyone's excited that they finally have a king. Well, almost everyone. There's a small group of people that don't think that Saul is going to be capable. And so uh, here's what happens. Because that actually gets put to the test pretty quick. Because there's a town called Jabesh-Gilead. It's besieged by the Ammonites. And when Saul hears about it, he is filled with rage. He puts together an army of over 300,000 men and destroys the Ammonites. And after the battle, his people come up to him and say, hey, who was it that said that you couldn't do this? Who was it that said you're not good enough for this? Let's go find him, bring him forward, and let's kill him. Because they spoke bad of our king. And this is what we're supposed to do. We saw it by looking at this other people over here. So whoever said it, let's bring him forth and kill him. And this is Saul's response in chapter 11. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul says, no. To put these men to death would be to say that I won a great victory here. I didn't win the victory. God won the victory. This wasn't me. This was God. I can't take credit. So we got this guy here who, when proclaimed king, was hiding in the luggage, who after being part of a tremendously successful military offensive, came out uh, on top of everything, and he took none of the credit. It seems to be that Saul's a pretty great king. But notice that whenever we see the things that we make us think that Saul's going to be a good king, it's the things that show his humility and submission to the Lord. But as we'll see in the coming weeks, it doesn't last long. Eventually, Saul starts taking more credit than he should. Eventually, he begins to step in front of the Lord to bring about his own desires. Eventually, Saul begins to trust more in the name of Saul than in the name of God. And we find that over the years, Saul turns into a pretty bad king, a mad king. And we begin to see that good kings are not made by their looks, their height, their strategic minds, but that the good kings are those that take the power that God had given them and they give it back to God. 
And if you look at all the kings of Israel, you will see that the only successful kings were the ones that surrendered their leadership back to God. In fact, Saul's biggest moments of success were when he realized and was submissive to what God was doing, not what his plan was. And it's not just true of kings. It's actually true of all of those that would claim Christ's lordship in their lives. It's true of all of us that would say that we want to follow God with our lives. We are the kings of our lives. You set an alarm and said, okay, I'm going to get up at this time tomorrow. I'm going to get dressed. I'm going to go to church. You choose most days where you eat, what you eat. You have the choice and the rule over so much of your life. And sure, there are things that are outside of your control. That's, that's the human condition. But you have so much say over what happens in your lives. We are the kings of our lives. We decide what we pursue, where we go, where we sit down, where we rise up. God has given us the power of choice and leadership in our lives. But the only way that we actually become successful, and by successful I mean successful in the things that last outside of this life, that speak into the eternal, the only way that we become successful is if we take that power that he has given us and we give it back to God. When we act from an understanding that God can do more with our lives than we can. In essence, that we allow God to break us, to break our will, to break our control. And I know that to be broken is kind of a negative thing. It's, it, it's, it's more of a negative context. But understand this. To allow God to break us is to also allow God to build us. When God takes us and breaks us down, he builds us up into what he has created us to be. Because what we do beforehand is we take all the pieces of what God has given us naturally and we try to piece those together to form ourselves into who we think we are. But when we give ourselves over to God, he breaks us down again and then he pieces them together in the way they were originally crafted to be. That only happens when we're broken. So the next point of the day is this, that in our brokenness, we experience the true strength and purpose of God. Paul really got to that in 2 Corinthians he comes to God begging God to remove his brokenness, which he calls his thorn in his flesh, something that he's struggling with. And he begs God, please take it away from me. And in 2 Corinthians 12, it says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We know that to live as the chosen people of God is to live in ways that don't make a lot of sense to people that would see it from the outside. But we're called to embrace our own brokenness because we know that when we are broken, we are made whole, not by our actions, but by the actions of Christ. He takes us, he breaks us, he pieces us back together into what we were created to be. Because we come to God with everything that we wish we were but can't be. But when we surrender, when we surrender who we are, we are made whole because in our greatest weakness, Christ is the strongest. Jesus is our strength. Jesus is the one that pieces us back together. So what, what do we learn from Saul today? I'd say two things. The first is that looks aren't everything. But the second is this. The most successful kings and the most successful people are those that in humility see the will of God as more important than their own those that allow their will to be broken at the altar of God's purpose. Saul really did get that at one point. Before he understood the power that comes with being a king, he actually got it. But it's not just something that we get and have it forever. It's something that we're called to pick up daily, 
to daily say, God, break my will. God, break my plans. God, I take the power. You've given me the power over this day. I take it and I give it to you. You take this and you move forward. Because the truest way for us to be a people after the heart of God is to daily lay our lives down and be conformed to his. So if I could give you an encouragement today, it's this. Do battle with this a little bit this week. Ask yourself, where am I trying to hold on to control? Where am I trying to hold on uh, to my plan? Do a little bit of battle with this. Ask yourself, where am I holding on to power and control that I need to give over to God? Where do I struggle to believe that I serve a God who truly does fight my battles? And where am I looking to what culture gives me instead of what God gives me to be my security? And in the next week, we're going to build on the foundation that we started today, and we're going to tell the story of a shepherd who is called to be the king. I'm looking forward to this series. I think it's going to be a great one. Um, and I I'm, I'm, cannot wait to dive into this a little bit more. But let's stop now, and let's just ask God to speak to us about just these things and that God would prepare us for what he wants to teach us through the life of David over the coming weeks. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. You've given us examples in Scripture that uh, amaze us. God, you've shown us uh, so many lessons of what we should do and so many lessons of what we shouldn't do. But Father, over all those things, I'm so thankful that you made it to where we get to be judged not by our actions, but by the actions of Jesus. And Father, I ask that as we are challenged to move over these next nine weeks, Father, that it would be a desire not to gain your love, but Father, to react from your love. God, please teach us how much you love us. God, thank you that we get to be your children. Lord, thank you for giving us purpose. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would continue to speak to us as we step here from here today. Oh, we love you. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.